0: To the Poor Almanac. This is once again, Andy, and we're happy to have Nate Kleinman join us again from the Experimental Farm Network. We chat about what they've been working on for the last few years since we spoke to them last, the future of the American chestnut, native crops, and crops that are going to be more important as climate change continues to alter what the landscapes around us look like here in Eastern North America. Nate's work is truly an inspiration, and every time we chat, I can't wait to get back out in the garden check out their work at ExperimentalFarmNetwork.org, and of course, find them on social media to see what they're up to. Now, let's get into our conversation. And just one more word, if you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or give us a little five-star on Spotify. That helps us rank higher, gets us recommended more, and it helps the podcast grow. Thanks again. Nate, thanks so much for joining us again. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm not not too bad. Um, you know, just getting over COVID right now, which is not super fun. But I am very excited to talk about the stuff you're doing and the, the stuff you've, you've gotten your hands on. So for folks that haven't listened to our conversation two years ago, and they're not familiar with the Experimental Farm Network, which they should be, can you uh, give us a really quick rundown?
1: Sure. Um, Experimental Farm Network is a nonprofit that I started with my friend, Dusty Hins, almost a decade ago now, in 2013. We are focused on collaboration and sustainable ag research. We want to get people working together to work on developing things like new perennial staple crops for fighting climate change. We also have uh, food justice, social justice focus. We do a lot of seed rematriation work trying to return seeds to the communities where they came from and where they belong. We're doing a lot of climate adaptation work and we fund our work by selling seeds. We didn't want to become reliant on the nonprofit industrial complex and you know begging rich people for money. so we basically try and uh, you know, s- make our money $4 at a time selling packets of seeds.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that doesn't get tedious at all. It's, I know from personal <laughs> experience. That's awesome. I, I really like what you guys are doing. I've been following you for a long time, and that's why I'm always excited to talk about what you're doing. I buy some of my own seeds from you, including the um, very unique Pure American Chestnuts that you guys had last year. I got, I think, a dozen from you. And I think I got about 90% survived, both germination and the first year. I lost one, I think, during the summer, but uh, I'm really excited to see what they do next year.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Glad to hear it. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward, hoping that they have a good crop out there this year so that we can have some more to offer next winter.
0: Yeah, that'd be awesome. It's really cool to see, not just see that you've been able to find them and get them and get them to people, but that people are excited for them. I mean, you sold, I think you sold out in a couple hours last year.
1: We did. Yeah. That one sold out super fast. Every year, there's something we we can't always predict which one is going to sell out super fast, but uh, that was the one that uh, last year. Yeah.
0: You've got some really cool, interesting stuff that you've been working on that uh, as, as this episodes come out has been released. So I'm sure you're, you're excited to see how those, those do. When we had spoken two years ago, you'd been really excited about sorghum. And I know you've been still working on it and had some really cool trials. So could you talk a little bit about what you've been doing?
1: Yeah, I love sorghum. Um, for folks who don't know it, sorghum is an African grain. Uh, a lot of people, their first exposure to it was The Walking Dead, where they uh, the, the survivors of the zombie apocalypse found some sorghum seed and were so excited because they knew that that was something that they could grow and produce a bunch of grain. I think it's, other than corn, it's really the best grain to grow at a small scale, for a homesteader scale. It's, it's easy to process by hand. It's delicious, it's gluten-free. It's also uh, much more drought-hardy than corn. It, most sorghum can survive on about one-sixth the water of corn. Doesn't need nearly as much nutrition in the soil either. Uh, and you can get you can get multiple crops out of it. You, you can get a grain crop from the seeds. You can get a sugar crop from the cane juice. You can even get a vegetable crop by harvesting the seeds when they're still green. It, they're almost like a chewy sweet corn at that stage. It's just really lovely. The grain can pop like popcorn. One of the things that is most exciting about cor- about sorghum is that uh, it has close relatives that are perennials. So we've been working with uh, a population that was bred by Tim Peters out in Oregon many years ago, and that one is probably a. Uh, it's got a Johnson grass in its in its lineage, but it really is a sorghum at this point, and it doesn't spread at all like Johnson grass. It it pretty much is a is a clump forming plant. It might make a small rhizome, and it can survive. Uh, it can survive the winter in Oregon pretty reliably. The first time we grew it in New Jersey, we, we got the seeds from our friends at Adaptive Seeds. We had one plant survive one winter. And then we saved, of course, all the seeds from that plant and uh, grew them out again. And we had four plants survive a winter in New Jersey. So that that those four plants, the original survivor plant became the basis for a population that we call M61 survivor. And that is, uh, we we sold those seeds last year. We're going to we're we're selling them again this year and last year here in New Jersey I grew that M61 alongside a few lines of perennial sorghum from the Land Institute the Land Institute has been working on breeding perennial grains for for decades now Theirs were much more diverse I was uh, a bit surprised to see how much diversity was in the lines that I had and they were I think agronomically they were not as impressive to me as the as the M61 but uh, I, I expect the perenniality is going to be stronger, so I'll find out in a few months when I see how uh, what grows back and and uh, whatever survives that winter is going to be the basis for our next perennial sorghum population, which hopefully we'll have seeds available next winter and and you know try and get a perennial staple grain that people can grow and use to replace all the bullshit GMO corn and soy that we grow on millions of acres.
0: Yeah, I mean I know. Kearns has taken, uh, gotten some, a lot of publicity, actually, not just some at this point, but it's still, you know, totally inaccessible to people like us that are just doing whatever in our backyard. So something like that, I think, is really cool to see and also has the numerous benefits that you've already outlined that I think Crane might not necessarily hear. You're in New Jersey, so you're what, 6B, 7A, somewhere in that, that range?
1: Yeah, definitely. We're we're in seven A, even even maybe seven B. It's uh, this has been a very mild winter um, so far. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, New Jersey's South Jersey, where we, we kind of grow anything.
0: Yeah, so like I, I'm six B seven A because I'm a coastal New England. Um, so usually I share a lot with New Jersey, but I think because you're in the South, it's a little bit warmer. But yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I I love screwing around with weird crops, especially cool perennials like that that you can then say like, look at this cool thing I got out of it, you know, through this weird lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just really fun I think to like take something that is so despised and then like spin it into something completely different.
1: I'm real interested in, in grain that can be grown on, the, on a home scale and on a homesteader scale. So one of the ones I've leaned into that's not a perennial grain, but is a, is a really useful annual grain in in part because it's, it's so drought hardy as well is teff from, from Ethiopia. You know, that's the, the staple grain in the Horn of Africa. It's it's what makes the famous injera bread that, uh, that you get at every Ethiopian restaurant. And so we, we got a number of varieties out of the USDA gene bank, gene banks to, uh, to trial them in different places. and, And, uh, we, we have two Land Race Teps from Ethiopia that uh, we got enough um, produced for the catalog this year, actually both of them grown in New Jersey by by different growers. At, uh, one of them was at a, a collaboration we're doing with Princeton University and the other was with, uh, with a friend of ours who was the former executive director of NOFA New Jersey. Uh, Nagisa Manabe did a great job growing a, this teff from uh, a place called Kobo Robit, Ethiopia. So it's the Kobo Robit land race. You'll find it in the catalog.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Now, if you don't mind me asking, why are you focusing on stuff that's so drought hardy, given that I feel like our region is considered to, to actually gain more rain over the next 30, 40 years from climate change?
1: Yeah. Um, we definitely, you know, that is what the, that's what they are forecasting for us, but, um, you know, I am not. I'm not sure how exactly that's going to go. And if last year was any indication, even though you know the 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 mean rainfall number might might be going up, we're still gonna we're still gonna have long extended drought at times. And um, and for our friends on the west coast and in other parts of the country, these having access to these these drought tolerant seeds is going to be increasingly important. You know, these are ones that also. it's, it's interesting to see how they perform when we have those heavy rain episodes as well. And so getting these things out of the gene banks and into the soil so that they can adapt to the really, really outrageous weather that we're, we're having and what's coming down the pike seems really, really valuable to me. And, and also, you know, teff is something that I really love as a food. So it's something (laughs) that I, I wanted to, Figure out how to grow, and there is an industry now growing it in places like Idaho and Montana. Um, but developing and and identifying varieties that can grow in our more damp environment in the Northeast is is also valuable. You know, we're I, I don't want to be wholly reliant on food grown in other regions because you never know uh, in the future if we're going to be able to have uh, those ties to those regions that we have now.
0: Yeah. When this comes out, it'll be Ju- July of this year. But thinking about last summer, I, you know, I think we went from April to almost July without really any rain. I'm sure you guys were basically in the same boat. And yeah, I think, like you said, it, it netted out being maybe a rainier year, but it it didn't feel like it. And mm. um, you know, if you're trying to get those spring starts going and there's no rain, that that's a tall order.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's really tough. And I I actually grew. I grew one variety myself of the teff, and I I was dry farming it, and the drought uh, the drought in the summer killed it. It was it was too much for it. Um, but my friends who were growing it at Princeton, um, they had they had some irrigation going on that uh, on that crop, so theirs was beautiful, and um, and uh, I actually still processing some of those seeds. But uh, by the time this airs, they should be in the catalog.
0: (laughs) You'll be uh, having a half waffle farm, half uh, raised bed farm, depending on the time of year. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to uh, climate change. (laughs) So uh, we were talking before we got on that. You haven't announced it yet as of this recording, but it's going to be coming some uh, really exciting stuff with corn. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'm really, really excited about this stuff. You may have read over uh, over the last few years about mucilaginous corn. That is corn that that, that drips this mucousy substance uh, off of its roots, and it has aerial roots. You can you can see them above the ground at the first few nodes above the ground. That ends up with this sticky, clear juice coming off of them. And um, what scientists, uh, Western white scientists, have only really recently uh, realized is that, um, and, and it's something that indigenous farmers realized hundreds or probably thousands of years ago, corn that, that produces that mucilage uh, is, is actually farming its own nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So the aerial roots are actually are, are what we can see, but the roots underground are also exuding the same kind of mucilage, and it attracts nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So... But that's it really is self-feeding corn. The, the corn is attracting bacteria that are going to help it produce, uh, that are going to produce nitrogen for it to absorb in its roots. And one scientific study found that one of these corns uh, was able to uh, fix 80% of the nitrogen that it needed. Um, so this is corn that is essentially grown without, can be grown without any additional fertilizer. And some of the farmers in Oaxaca in Mexico who have a corn like this, when scientists were uh, talking to them, they said, Oh yeah, we, we take that mucilage and we, we put it on other crops too. Um, so they're, they're taking the, they're taking this, um, liquid and they're using it to attract nitrogen fixing bacteria to other crops as well. And apparently that works. So there's a really huge potential for this and, um, Uh, Michael Fortune is who we got our seeds from. He's been working for a a decade or more in um, Asheville, the Asheville area, North Carolina. Uh, So we have four populations of this corn. One of them is based on a a speckled parching corn like uh, Pescaruntu is a, a Peruvian corn. The other is the purple morado that they make chicha with, the the purple corn drink in Peru. Another is is more like the Cusco Gigante hominy, the really large flat white seed. And then the other one is uh, what we're calling the ultra cross of that, which is which is a a population that includes all of that and more. So he's been Michael's been working with a whole bunch of different corns after first encountering some of this self feeding corn in Peru. And um he's already already gotten quite a bit of attention for it, even though the you know, all the work is happening on his farm. So this is the first time uh that that he's releasing seeds to the outside world. And we're real honored and excited that that uh that he's chosen to do that with us. Probably by the time this airs, all of the packets of these that we have are gonna be sold out. But uh hopefully we'll have more and more available next year.
0: Yeah, that that's really awesome. I have so many, I'm so curious to see how that plays out over the next couple decades in terms of, you know, our understanding of how that's happening, like, uh, how, how it's sharing that, uh, mucilage to, you know, is it, is it actually a getting into the, the seed? So that way, when you plant the seed, it's with it again, as it grows and kind of what that mm-hmm. relationship looks like or what that material actually is. Yeah, I, people probably know a lot about it that I don't at this point, but... It seems really, you know, ins- uh, hopeful given how everything else feels.
1: Yeah, and I, I think we have s- so much more to learn about this corn and the indigenous knowledge and practices that are attached to it. Are it's really, really going to be important for us to learn from how it's been used in the past and and uh, and how it's currently being used. And um, it's also really important. And and I want to uh, m- to mention that um, we're going to be attaching some kind of uh, Legal-ish agreement on it, like a materials transfer agreement, so that um, people who who people who buy the corn will be agreeing to never patent it, never use this material to put intellectual property protections on it. This is uh, this is going to be open source material that is freely available, and um, so we we think it's really important to get this out there and and make sure that. That we put that on there so that none of these corporations can can come in and try and get a utility patent on it and say, "Oh, this is ours. When this is um, this is something that uh, that indigenous people have known about and have been uh, growing for a long, long time. And if anybody is is going to should uh, benefit from it, it, it's those communities. So we're also going to be working uh, before we release it. We're, we're going to be figuring out an appropriate organization. Uh, that works in the Andes to do voluntary royalties with these seeds.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I, I mean, I think even if a lot of people understand that the argument you're making, it's really hard to figure out how to put that on paper and to like, especially when we start talking at the scale that we're working at, where you know, none of us have the resources or the knowledge of the legal system to like put together a comprehensive, you know safeguard on that. And I think it's really awesome. You guys are trying to stay ahead of that. I hope it works out and I'm definitely going to be trying to grab some of those seeds.
1: <laughs> we'll let you know. We'll, we'll make a post and uh, I'll, I'll, uh, i kick you off to it because we don't have, we really do not have a ton of this stuff. We just wanted to, we want to get out, get it out there and get people starting to work on it because, you know, we all, we often say that our model really relies on, it relies on lots and lots of people working on this stuff. In plant breeding, so often you're looking for that needle in a haystack. So the more more people we have looking, the more likely we are to find it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, especially with corn, it's so photosensitive. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how it does this far north.
1: Yeah. And yeah, because he's in Asheville, it, it's been adapted to a more northerly and uh, cooler climate too. So it's a, it was a good place, I think, for you know adapting something from Peru to North America.
0: Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from PoorProlls.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Prols website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorprols.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Now, on the totally opposite end of the spectrum, you you guys are doing a little bit of everything, which is really cool. We've talked about, like, tree crops with the American chestnut, sorghum, you know, a esoteric grain, basically, you know, a nitrogen-fixing corn, or however you want to describe it. And then you've also got this interesting crop for uh, oil, a perennial seed oil crop, the uh, tea oil camellia. Now, whenever everyone talks about, like, tree crops, and they're like, I don't know, what are we going to do with this? My response is always like, why aren't we using oil, making it into an oil? Like, everything we could just press into oil, and then the feed can be given a livestock. And that just seems like a really obvious thing to me. Like, you, you've you got these hickory nuts that produce really delicious hickories, but we can't process them. Press them. And I think this is probably a, a similar example of like, hey, we can just press it, get this really great oil, and then, you know, do whatever with the byproduct. But... um where where did this come from first off
1: so tea oil camellia which is camellia oleifera in latin uh oil oil bearing camellia is uh, is a very close relative to camellia sinensis the the plant that makes tea that we um you know we use the leaves to make tea it comes from china and it is um it's the most uh, i've been I've read that it's the most popular cooking oil in southern china uh, especially in sichuan province it's an incredibly uh, high heat uh, has a high smoke point so it's a great frying oil. It's considered to have a neutral flavor but I find it has a really pleasant unique flavor. It's not it, it, it's really hard to put a finger on exactly what it tastes like. There's some to me there are some echoes of the of the flavor of tea in the oil uh, but it has a nuttiness as well and it really is quite mild. I've put it on um, I've put it on salads. I've used it as a frying oil. I, I think that some people have are familiar with the flavor because they've tasted it at, at Chinese restaurants. But it's uh yeah, it's something that this that we just most people don't have any knowledge of this plant growing. But North Carolina State has a whole webpage about how to how to grow it. The National Arboretum, the U.S. government has been growing it in Washington D.C. for a long time. There are ornamental cultivars of this species as well, many of which also produce great oil and also happen to be beautiful and, and more cold hardy than than a lot of the camellias. So it's a it's a really exciting plant, and um, you know I'm hopeful that by getting this out there, we're going to get more people producing producing it locally. Hopefully, developing new varieties. Um, you know and we just got this from one source but i i, I want to i'm excited over the next few years to try and find additional sources for it additional varieties uh, apparently there are some very cold hardy ones that come from the northern part of its range so yeah we're going to be working working very hard to source more of that and make sure that it's something that we have every year that that was one of the ones that sold out really fast we had about five pounds of seed and it was gone and a few days and thankfully we were able to buy five more pounds from, from our source, but now they're out as well. So. <laughs> so we'll is see. that
0: like a, a bush similar to like, you know, a, a tea plant as we think of it, Camellia sinensis. I can never pronounce it right. Sinensis. Yeah. I'm not going to try. You got it.
1: Yeah. It is a bushy, it is a bushy plant. It could become a small tree if you let it, but they're typically, they're typically pruned to to stay small so
0: that they can be hand harvested. That's awesome. How does it look in terms of like production value, you know, for oil?
1: Yeah. Um, I did I tried to do some calculations and from what I can tell, it's probably about one-sixth, maybe one-eighth the the productivity of uh industrially produced soybeans as far as, you know, per acre. But you know, the, I'm not sure how accurate those numbers are. That was based on you know various sources online. So I think it's not going to be as productive pound for pound and as soybeans or something like that are. But with all of the ecosystem services that it provides, uh, creating habitat, preserving the soil, uh, sequestering carbon, you know it's going to more than make up for, for, for being less productive than soybeans. And uh, because of the way it grows as well, being very slow growing um, and, and being a, a shrubby plant, I think it's a great candidate for intercropping with other crops. It's not going to produce a ton of shade to shade out other things. So it's really could be a wonderful addition to a, an, an agroecological polyculture system.
0: Yeah. When I was younger, I'm talking like 15 years ago, uh, I tried to grow tea here and it survived like Two years, then we just got decimated in the winter. But I think the climate's probably changed enough that I, I could probably grow it now, just because, which is frightening. But like, I mean, just thinking about the last three winters, it's hard not to believe that's the case. Yeah. You know, we'll probably have a free cold snap here and there, but that's about it. Yeah.
1: There are some tea plantations pretty far north already, right now. And I, I believe there is somebody in Massachusetts who is growing tea right now. I know there's someone in upstate New York who's growing tea. There's a big planting in South Carolina. There are people here in New Jersey growing tea outdoors. So it's it's uh yeah, there's there's an industry coming for that. And we do have we do have seeds this year for the first time for regular tea as well, uh, that comes comes from India. I'm not sure how cold hardy those seeds are gonna be, but we'll see. Most of the the cold hardiest tea germplasm that's out there mostly comes from comes from the former Soviet Union. There's a, a strain of tea from Sochi uh, in Russia that is um, often cited as the most cold tolerant. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's if there's even more cold tolerant tea out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got to hand it to the Soviets. Like if they got one thing right, it was the ag- agronom- agronomy they were doing was just surreal um, that we're still feeling reverberations from it. Fifty years later, sixty years later, which is pretty pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I, I I do appreciate it when I find things in the in the U.S. government database um, when it says "Babylonov Institute." I'm I'm always having <laughs> respect for that place and for the for the scientists who 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 starved to death rather than eat the seeds that were under their care during the uh, during the seed yeah. in World War II. And yeah, obviously. The agricultural policies were, were fucked up in a lot of ways and they, you know, weaponized uh, weaponized food production to create famine in places like Ukraine. But uh but the things that the scientists were doing were, were really uh next level and, and we're we're definitely still benefiting from that
0: in so many ways. People wanna paint everything as black and white, but man, you look at like you said, the research they did is just next level uh it really makes you wonder though like if we'd spent that kind of money in the u.s what we could have done the last 50 years like building on that kind of research how how much more adapted we could be today for climate change that we're like we're totally inept right now i mean Mm -hmm. like people like us are doing are trying to prep for it because the government isn't and that's just that's frightening like no offense to you it's just it's frightening
1: (laughs) I mean, that's what happens when we when our government's been bought and sold by corporations and the corporations that are dealing with seeds are all chemical corporations that are trying to sell chemicals. And so it's been you know, we have we have government policy for so many years that has been that has been focused on uh, massive industrial production. And there are I will say there are some really great people in the system in the system who work for the government doing doing really really important work preserving the the seeds that have been collected over the last almost 150 years since the since the government started collecting seeds and you know the work that they do maintaining and distributing those seeds is is really quite heroic but you know this is about funding priorities and what congress chooses to fund and how the universities choose to spend their money and you know there's there's only a few universities out there that are really focused hard on perennial agriculture on developing perennial grains on on developing you know working on breeding nut crops uh, you know I'm really impressed with the New Jersey hazelnut breeding program and um, you know Washington State is working on perennial wheat and um you know there there are some there are some really important things out there happening but there's so few and far between and and it really is you know it really is incumbent on all of us out here anyone who has a patch of dirt, to be uh to be using that to 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 grow things and that's a big part of what we try to do with EFN is get those seeds into people's hands so that uh so that people can do their own breeding work and you know you're going to get things from us that you plant 20 seeds and you're going to get 20 different plants and that's uh that's the appeal that's the that's what breeds resilience
0: yeah, it's funny you say it you mentioned um, New Jersey. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Tom Molnar in a couple of weeks from the uh, Hazelnut program, if you know him. Oh,
1: yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, so it, it it's funny. It's one of those, it's an industry or a field that if you're into this kind of stuff, like it's a pretty small space once you get to know people. And um, like yeah. you said, there are some really great people doing work in um, kind of rather innocuous places where you're thinking like some of the stuff that people are doing is, is pretty radical. And uh, they're just like flying underneath you know the radar just doing cool stuff and no one really bothers them and it's awesome
1: have you spoken to chris smith down in uh, down in asheville he's he runs the utopian seed project and used to work at so true seeds chris is uh chris is an awesome guy and uh, he's the source of uh of, of a few seeds in our catalogs uh this year uh, including the ultra cross okra ultra cross Collard. um he, he's working on adapting things like tarot to grow in north america and um identifying varieties and 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 trying to do crosses and just really uh, he's working on um on chayote for the north and um really really cool stuff it's been really fun to work with him
0: i haven't spoken to him but i'm gonna have to look him up now yeah uh, he wrote, he wrote a book uh called the whole okra that was a real
1: really popular book a few years ago he's a he's a british guy you you don't expect a you don't expect a white british guy to be the the expert on okra but he's mad at <laughs> uh,
0: yeah uh, i used to live uh, actually in in near uh, the tea plantation in south carolina when i was down there i tried okra for the first time turns out it's the one food i'm allergic to the only thing i've ever had an allergic reaction to in my life
1: oh that's too yeah. bad
0: i was so disappointed i'm like i'm a southerner now i'm gonna eat this okra and it was just bad time dang never
1: even heard of that
0: yeah <laughs> right that was my thought i was like i'm not allergic to anything this can't be an allergy and they're like your face is like swollen up you're you're uh you need some medicine buddy i was like all right fine <laughs> if, if you say well, so
1: it'll be it will be interesting to see if you're if you're brave enough to try because uh there is uh, one thing that Chris is also working on with okra, and um, we've we've uh, discussed a whole bunch is uh, is okra as an oil seed crop hmm. because okra okra seeds are rich in oil that has a really nice flavor as well, and um, there's some people already already touting it as the olive oil of the south, and um, it's uh, it, it's got it's got big potential. So Chris went in after after watching me talk about how to how to use the government database and how to find the seeds, I pointed out that there's a, that there's a, um, that they've studied the, they've, they've evaluated many of the, most of the okras in the government collection for the oil seed content. So he requested all the highest oil seed, uh, highest oil content okras and is working on, uh, working on breeding a, a, you know, high producing oil seed okra. That's awesome. So that, I wonder if you're allergic to the green part or to the
0: seeds or both? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's only one way to find out, right?
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Just wait every standing by.
0: So are you working? Uh, I know you... Well, I'm going to ask you a stupid question because I know the answer, but I figure I'll let you go into it more deeply. Are there any um, specific native crops that you're working with that you're excited about in the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, there's always, always uh, native crops that I'm I'm excited about. Uh, you already mentioned the American chestnut. I'm really, uh, I'm a big fan of the chinkapin chestnut, which is uh, a lesser known species, also native, uh, native to the Southeast. And uh, the seeds are, are naturally sweeter. They're smaller, but it, it's a really cool plant that historically was was really, really valued. And you know, they would show up in markets a few weeks a year, and people would, you know, they the the people who harvested them could har- could charge a ton, and they would always get bought up. Um, but chinkapins are are one that I'm excited about. It's not; it, it is affected by the same chestnut blight, but it's not affected as much as um, as the American chestnut. So the plants can produce seeds for many many years before the fungus causes the branches to die back to the ground. I'm always excited about Maypop passion fruit. That's one of my favorite, favorite native plants. It's a delicious plant. It is, um, it's a, another multi-crop plant. Most people grow it for the beautiful flowers. They want to get the fruit, which has this delicious flavor that I think is sweeter than uh, than the tropical passion fruit, not quite as sour or, or sharp in flavor. Um, sometimes it has butterscotch, caramel overtones. It's really... Uh, Really, really lovely. Yeah, it's it's also an, a leaf crop. You can actually eat the leaves in a salad. Um, you can use them as a vegetable. It's medicinal. It's it's an anti-anxiety crop. It's an anti-depression anti, and a, as a sleep aid as well. Uh, people get passionflower tea all the time. You know they're they're paying like twelve dollars for a small box of you know twenty tea bags. Um, when they could be growing the stuff at home and harvesting, you know, enough for hundred tea bags in in like twenty minutes, um, it's really uh, or or less. Than, it's a, it's an incredibly prolific plant, and we're working on um, we, the seeds that we sell most years. Where we we uh, we didn't have a good crop last year because of the drought, um, but we typically sell seeds from the northernmost wild populations that we know of in Delaware and New Jersey and they fruit reliably, they're, they're more cold-hardy than a lot of the nursery stock that folks have gotten from, that typically comes from the south. Yeah, it's really uh, a, a really, really cool crop. I'm excited about, uh, I'm, I'm always excited about elderberries as well. We've got an elderberry breeding mix that we're offering so that uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of elderberry diversity out there um, there's only a few varieties typically sold, Adams and York and some, some of those. And there's not a ton of work happening uh, breeding new ones. So we've worked to source seeds from a, a bunch of different places and a bunch of different uh, elderberry bushes that, that we know of, and including wild ones that are really productive. And you know, we offer those so that people can work on, on breeding their own. Wild ramps, of course, is a, is a favorite one. Always, and it's always one of our, our big sellers. I was going to say the yao holly is another one. You know, as a caffeine plant, uh, it's a holly that grows in the southeast and and is one is pretty much the only plant in in North America that has significant amounts of caffeine. And it also has theobromine, which is the chemical in chocolate that that makes it uh, that one of the things in chocolate that makes people relax feel feel great.
0: <laughs> uh, are you doing anything with uh, evening primrose?
1: We haven't done much work on evening primrose, but I am excited about it. Um, we've, we've done a little bit of work looking for some of the old varieties of evening primrose. It, evening primrose, for folks who don't know, is a, is a common weed with these yellow flowers and you see it all over the place. The seeds are are really nutritious, and evening primrose oil is is in, an incredibly expensive commodity. But there there used to be varieties that were that that had really large roots, and the root were eaten as a vegetable. Um, the entire plant is edible: roots, shoots, leaves, stems, seeds, flowers. The whole thing is edible. So it's this it's this wild, weedy plant that's just. Sitting out there, and most people are not taking advantage of it. Um, whenever I see one and the and it's got the seed pods open, I I always just shake some into my hand and pop them into my mouth because it's uh, uh it, it's an incredibly healthy uh, healthy thing.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we we just did a native seed mix that we're shipping out, um, and at this at the point of this. People listening, it'll have been out for a bit, but Evening Primrose is like a base one because it's so good at um, competing with invasives. If you're trying to fill in, you know, a spot on the side of the road or you know whatever it might be, and you know really claim that territory for some native plants. And it's a biennial, so that first year mm-hmm. you don't get a ton of that growth, but it'll really crowd out a lot of the bad stuff. Let some goldenrod come in, all that good, you know, native plants give some diversity support the pollinators all that fun stuff but yeah those roots you look at them and you're like god why are we not doing anything with this
1: <laughs> yeah it's something that we really we really should have a project to work on selecting those and trying to select for size probably 5 years of intensive breeding work with a you know starting with a diverse population you could probably get you could probably get pretty far in uh, in breeding something new that's awesome they used to exist they they the varieties used to be out there um, but they they seem to be all lost.
0: That's the killers. When you start looking at some of these old catalogs, and you start seeing these varieties that you're like, where where did they go? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that kills me. You start because uh, there's a lot of, especially the old uh, like tree nurseries and stuff, and you start looking at the varieties that were out there, and you're especially like beach plums, stuff like that, and you're just yeah. like, they're all gone. Like ninety percent right. of them are gone. It's killer. It, it really
1: is sad. Yeah, I've been. Um, I've been doing a little uh, watercress deep dive recently too, and there used to be a lot more, lot more diversity out there of watercress, and, and that seems to be all gone. There were different colors, and we don't even talk about watercress as having varieties now. It's just like watercress. <laughs> it's it's green. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. Uh,
1: one other. Oh, I wanted to mention one other um, wild plant that uh, wild native plant that I'm excited about is uh, is the devil's walking stick. Uh, Aralia spinosa. So this is a plant that is in the, it's in the same family as ginseng, but it's an it's a relatively enormous in comparison. They can grow, you know, ten or fifteen feet tall. You might see it in in public parks and in in the woods, and it has. It has this gnarly-looking, really thorny stalk. That's why they call it devil's walking stick. So, you know, if you're ever sliding down a slope and you just grab for whatever tree is there, you are really unlucky if you uh, find yourself (laughs) holding a a devil's walking stick. Um, But it's a really cool plant. It has uh, it has these purple berries. It has a real tropical look with these big, uh, big sprays of white flowers. And it's it's. It can be eaten as a vegetable. The shoots are the are the main part that's eaten. The shoots and the young leaves before it develops those spines. It has a close cousin in uh, in Asia that's eaten as a delicacy in Japan and and Korea and China. There's some there's some beautiful pictures out there of what the shoots look like there. And the the native species is very very similar. In fact, the Asian species has naturalized here and is crowding out the native one in some places. So we're excited about getting the native species. Into more people's hands to get it out there and compete with the with the naturalized one from Asia. Uh, but the most exciting thing about this plant is that it contains compounds that are antibiotic and that have demonstrated effectiveness against some antibiotic resistant infections. And uh, you know, these uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria in wounds is a is a huge public health problem. Uh, and so any plant that is a potential potential new antibiotic is, uh, is, is just in, incredibly important. So here's one that's beautiful. It's a vegetable and it's an antibiotic. So we just want to get, get more people growing that one.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you always hear about these people talking about like, oh, you know, there's, there's probably 20,000 plants in India that haven't been identified and we need to go find them and catalog them and see what they can do. And it's like, we could look in our backyard first. (laughs) There's so much out there. We still, we, we, we know just the, the very surface level understanding of so many of the plants around us. You you still hear people talking about like cattails, like they've just discovered that they like are great for like cleaning water sources. And, you know, that, that's a great resource we have that we, we're allowing, you know, Phragmites to just take over waterways. And then also saying, like, look at how destroyed these waterways are when we have native plants that can do these great things and we can integrate them back into these ecosystems. And, and, and in the case of cattails, we can also eat them, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so tasty. And uh, even the pollen is, uh, is, is useful and probably medicinal as well. Another one I'm excited to have seeds for this year that we've been really interested in for a while, but this is, you know, as much as I love saying we can grow anything in New Jersey, this one is not really happy here is the jojoba, which is uh, native to the Southwest, to the Sonoran Desert, and is a really, really useful crop. Most people only think of jojoba oil as as a product in cosmetics, but it has a long history of use um, by indigenous people as um, medicinal use and even culinary use it's an oil that we can't digest so uh you know as a as an undigestible fat it probably has some some uh some culinary uses that we we've just really scratched the surface on uh, the government still lists it on the usda website as a as a potential replacement for petroleum jesus <laughs> it's a plant that grows in the desert it has you know it, it can grow it actually does better in drier years it's a native plant. It provides habitat. And I mean, it's such a, such a valuable, important crop. And um, in the seventies, you know, there was, there was talk about growing it on a massive scale as a biofuel, but you know, suspiciously that conversation all just sort of (laughs) Reagan. Yeah. It just stopped (laughs) in the eighties. There was no money put towards it. And uh, the USDA still has a collection left over from those days, and they've even when we were getting uh, cuttings from them a uh, few years ago, we were focused on the ones that had uh, frost tolerance. There's one that had dem- that have demonstrated it's an evergreen desert plant, and it typically grows in places that don't have prolonged freezes. But there's quite a few plants in the collection that have demonstrated the ability to withstand that, and uh, most of the hohoba these days is grown in. Uh, in India and uh, in Israel, Palestine, and it's, th- these things are, you know, it's, it's mostly grown for the cosmetic industry. But if, you know, if we had something like, oh, a national agriculture policy based on using agriculture to fight climate change, we would be pouring tons of money into, into Ahoba Instead, we just think about it as something to put in your shampoo.
0: Yeah, I. whenever anyone starts saying, like, oh, we had this thing and it got defunded in the late 70s, early 80s, it just, it kills me. Like, I think about, like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Garth Youngberg, who was at the USDA, who was a really big advocate for, like, sustainable agriculture. Jimmy Carter put him in the USDA because he was, like, this big, like, public speaker who people were, like, gravitating towards. And he was just, like here's some money, go do research. And like one of the first things Reagan did when he took over was basically stop funding anything for uh, alternative agriculture and got rid of him from the USDA. And it was like, I, I'm just curious how many projects that we were like, oh, the USDA stopped funding this in 81. And it was like, well, I can tell you why that happens. Um, it's It kills me every time. I'm excited about
1: the, the proliferation of, Civic science aimed at uh, revolution uh, revolutionizing our agricultural system, and I mean, this is you know there there is no time like the present to be doing this work, and uh, it's going to be too late if we don't if we don't do it now. We can't rely on the government. We can't rely on corporations. We've gotta we've we've gotta get together and and work on this stuff ourselves. And and so many of these projects are. Really, really long-term projects. It's you know we're under no illusion that that it's going to be we're going to be able to develop a, a viable perennial grain crop, you know, in the next few years. The, these are things that are going to take a long time. The, these are generational struggles. So we need to we need to work on them that way, and we need to put systems in place that that facilitate that kind of work happening. And that's that's a big part of what we're trying to do with EFN um, now that we've been around for ten years and. The seed sales have become a reliable source of income. Uh, Where you know we we're really going to be spending the next ten years, I hope, working to formalize that and solidify solidify our organization as an institution that that can play a role in the long term. And uh, and you know it's it's been really fun to watch uh, the things that people are doing in their home gardens and on their small farms, and it's it's just uh, you know it's it's already been been successful beyond my wildest dreams and I, I am thrilled to see what's going to happen
0: I will say I've I've been aware of you guys for probably five years now and uh, watching how it's exploded has been it's been awesome to, just from having gotten the opportunity to talk to you now a couple times but also just like it's inspiring that people that it reminds me that we're not alone that there's a lot of other people that have these same feelings, these same opinions the same Desire to actually go out and do the thing, as opposed to just talking about it. We need that. We we all need to know that we're not alone in that struggle. Inevitably, I think like when people listen to these conversations, um, like what we're having right now, they get excited, and then the next thing I know, I get emails that'll say, "Hey, how do I start a seed company? <laughs> um, how how do I How do I start doing stuff like this? How do I contribute?" Um, so obviously, they can buy seeds from you, but do you have any advice for folks that are like, "I"? I love growing plants. I want to do this kind of stuff. Like what exactly what you're doing?
1: Yeah. I mean, we need hundreds, thousands more seed companies. Ideally there's a seed company in every county in the country because, you know, there's so much diversity to the, to the weather, to the soil types, the culture we, we need more and more. There's been, we've lost so many and there's been an explosion over the last decade or two of new, Seed companies, but they're they're doing well. You know, if if you are if you're a if you're a farmer, if you have some land, and uh, you're you're trying to diversify what you're doing, growing seeds is it is a is a great way to do it. And uh, even if you're just a, a home gardener, um, we have plenty of home gardeners who are producing seeds for our catalog. You know, maybe they're only producing one or two crops, and they're doing it in the backyard. But it doesn't take a bunch of space to to produce a good. Seed crop. I also I have to mention that one of the things that I've been spending a lot of my time over the last two years doing is working with a, a new organization based in Maryland called the Ujama Cooperative Farming Alliance, and that is a, a Black Indigenous uh, people of color led seed company, and um, it's a cooperative working on uh, value added products as well and increasing markets for for the farmers who have been. So systematically excluded from the agricultural system in so many egregious ways through the years, both official and unofficial, from USDA discrimination to uh, neighbors um, burning crosses in people's lawns and chasing Black families out of the South. Um, you know that all of those injustices. Uh, you know it's it's going to be impossible to to make up for that. But an organization like Ujamaa is really doing uh, amazing work, getting new new growers who have never never thought that they could be seed farmers. It maybe never occurred to them. And so many uh, farmers who, farmers of color who are working uh, struggling to make ends meet growing and selling seeds through the Cooperative through JAMA, through EFN, through uh, other partner seed companies like Southern Exposure and and, and others who, who work with us, you know it, it provides an amazing opportunity to supplement their income. Um, and to be, uh, you know, to pr- be producing something that's uh, culturally meaningful and delicious and important at the same time. Um, so I definitely urge people to to also check out ujamaseeds.com and ujamafarms.com to learn more about that. And folks can get, get in touch with us at efnseeds.com or uh, experimentalfarmnetwork.org. Uh, we're always looking for new growers. If you've got something interesting out there that you think people are going to want, let us know about it. That's how. That's how a lot of our catalog was born. Uh, we have. We you know we get new people writing to us all the time with really interesting things. Actually, our most popular seed this year is from uh, from a random person we've never met who who approached us over the winter and said, "There's this amazing persimmon tree in Bloomington, Indiana. We call it the Giving Tree, and the it produces ten times the fruit each year." than an average persimmon tree and it has it has no astringency and great flavor and the the people who own it they've set up this elaborate net system underneath it and they catch you they have a google doc and they share all the thousand <laughs> pounds of persimmons with all their neighbors every year and and it's this beautiful story these beautiful oh, that's awesome beautiful persimmons and and you know we that they're we we can't we can't keep them in stock. We're, uh, <laughs> we're 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 almost out of those. I'm sure they'll be long gone by the time this airs. But you know we're going to be in touch with uh, with Corey who got us those seeds, and hopefully have way more next winter so that we can uh, so that we can get everybody growing this uh, this uh, seeds from this amazing tree and breeding breeding new persimmon varieties from it.
0: Yeah, that that's what it's all about, making food a little bit better, making everyone have a little bit more access. Yep. Nate, thanks so much. This has been so much fun.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.